Everybody. Hi. Hi. I'm Sarita. Uh, welcome to On She Goes, the podcast. Uh, it's a recording live. <laughs> Today we're at Wyden Kennedy, New York uh, for the Fast Company Innovation Festival. I'm a little nervous, so I'm just going to put that out there. I feel like if you put it out there, then you like calm down a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> And if I talk too fast, just like scream at me to slow down. Um, So today's discussion is going to be called uh, Representation Matters. So what we'll be discussing is race and gender in media and the creative class. Um, The goal for the panel is to come to an understanding about the unique issues that women of color face within predominantly white industries, which to aim to represent the populace at large. We have four amazing panelists and speakers that we are over the moon to have. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't express to you guys. I I feel like I've done this so much over email with you guys that I'm like, I'm so thankful. (laughs) Like, like every uh, every email between the three of us has been like, look at God. We did. (laughs) Yeah, we did. (laughs) We have. We have. Um, So today uh, we have Angela Yee, the host of. The syndicated radio show of The Breakfast Club and her podcast, Lip Service, which is awesome, by the way. Uh, she talks sex and relationships with the hottest stars in hip-hop and R&B. Uh, we also have Jamila Lemieux. Woo! Yes. My soror and uh, alumna from Howard University, cultural critic and writer with a focus on issues of race and gender and sexuality. We have Michaela Angela Davis, writer on... <laughs> Writer on African-American style, race, gender, and hip-hop culture in the United States. She's also a fashion expert and an image activist. And then we have Minya O, a.k.a. Miss Info. (laughs) The founder of Miss Info TV and a groundbreaking voice for female and Asian-American representation in America, in the media. Okay, so we're going to jump right into it. And listen, there's no rules here, so if you want to curse, curse. Oh. Yay! <laughs> say what you want. Morning. Yes. <laughs> say what you want. You know, just you know, mean what you say. Say what you mean. You know what I mean? Okay. So the first question, honestly, here is um, it's a big one because you know, with Wyden and Kennedy specifically, we've gotten behind, and our CEO was on the founding team for Times Up Advertising, um, and so. As women of color in media in the era of Time's Up, Me Too movements, do you feel as though you've been properly represented in these movements? Um, If so, tell us how. If not, please, and be honest. Be honest. And anyone can go first. Okay. (laughs) I do think that the whole um, catalyst for it has been kind of like when white Hollywood women spoke up about it. Mm -hmm. And at first, like when we would say things, it wasn't really valued or acknowledged the way it has been since then. I remember like Alyssa Milano did something about Time's Up and everybody thought she like started and created this whole movement. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it was something that already existed. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that that kind of has been the start when these white women spoke up about it. Then all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. But I do feel like in the music industry with, with women of color, for so long, like things have happened and we've been taught, well, this is just part of what the business is. And mm-hmm. so this is just what comes with it. 
So if you don't want to get blackballed or you want to keep your job, then you just kind of roll with it or be like, oh my God, stop, leave me alone. And I do feel like a lot of times, even trying to explain this to like my coworkers, sometimes men act like they're the victims of Oh, women yeah. mm-hmm. saying that these things are happening like they don't believe you. Well, why did you wait so long to say something? Mm-hmm. Or right. if that was me, I would have did this. Well, I can't believe her. How does she remember something that happened 30 years ago? And so I think it has been uh, a situation where we still aren't being heard the way that we should be or even believed. Mm-hmm. And, and first of all, good morning, y'all. <laughs> I am so happy to um, be here. I just got off of a flight from, I was in Florida on um, a voting rights tour, and they fit to do it in Florida. Oh, they're good. <laughs> oh, they're good. Um, it's really exciting. So many young people, so many people that were on the margins are out. Um, you know, we were having a really spirited conversation, particularly about Me Too. The idea that why Me Too existed was to protect black and brown girls from sexual violence. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that again. Right. It was existed to, it, Toronto started it to protect black and brown girls from sexual violence, where the, the numbers and the cases of sexual violence among black and brown girls is exponential and, and generational and, and so much trauma and pain in our communities because of what happens to our girls and boys, mm-hmm. right? And so we've been charged, particularly as women of color to to not let the movement get usurped, to not let, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people don't even really know that. Yeah. That it really That's was true. about protecting black and brown girls from sexual violence. Not to say that movements can't move and grow mm-hmm. and open up to all folks that, and particularly women who have experienced sexual violence, but the women who, were, who it was created to protect first are the ones that are in it last, like who has seen any black and brown girls on any red carpet talking about their experience? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not sexy, it's not fun, it's, you know, it's hard to make that um, an ad, Mm -hmm. but it's so, it's real that if we don't protect our girls, if we don't start addressing the sexual violence that is rampant in certain neighborhoods because of poverty, because of white supremacy, because, 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 We're always going to be fighting for space. We fight for space in the women's march. We mm-hmm. fight for space in times. We're always fight. Quick antidote. Last we were at Bethune Cookman College. That's a blackity black college. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. There were two white women in the room from the Gillum campaign. Mm-hmm. Two in the whole room, and it was flowing. It was a great event for these students. One of the white women stood up and announced her, like, gave her bio, took up so much space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, bruh. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, you're, and she had no idea that she was taking up so much space in this one hour that these students have right. it, with intimate conversation with a Michael Eric Dyson or something. Mm-hmm. So that is an antidote of what happens often. Mm-hmm. It's just all this space that gets taken up, even when things are carved out that say, this is a blackity black, 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 (laughs) you know, event for one hour. And can you just like fall back? (laughs) And so that's an, I feel like we do that in C-suites as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to just jump in on, on that point. 
Michaela always, I mean, anytime she speaks, I'm just sitting there. I'm basically part of the audience because I'm like, please, please illuminate all of the things that are confused in my mind. But um, I think, you know, one problem is that um, I, I remember Tarana speaking somewhere, or maybe it was an interview um, in print, and she was saying that the entire movement has been you know, obscured by all of the salacious details of mm. a more higher profile mm. stories. And so now the entire movement is equal to the who, what, where, what couch, how the groping happened and, mm-hmm, you know, right. what's he, what his, he's losing in his divorce, you know, and mm. all of these other things for these very high profile people. This person lost their job. And again, it is then about the man and what the consequences are for him. Mm-hmm. And... So that's a problem. I also think that for a lot of us who are the people who get to tell these stories or retell these stories for others, we lose um, sight of our own privilege mm-hmm. in terms of like, mm-hmm. this is a, supposed to protect people who do not have that voice. So yeah. mm-hmm. you listen to stories more carefully about women who have been taken advantage of on the shop floor, in factories, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who are not allowed to unionize, who don't have access to health care, or, God forbid, mental health care, mm-hmm. and really think about how it, things affect them as opposed to... We, you know, I think many bad things have happened to me, as I'm sure Angela mm-hmm. has experienced in the music industry, in the hip-hop mm-hmm. business. Mm-hmm. But we have also the access to help we have people who will listen to us. We have access to spread the word. Um, so there, there are consequences to things, you know, people doing things to us. Mm. And the last thing I want to just add is that as an Asian American, we need to also learn how to take up a little bit of space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't, culturally, we don't take up any space. We mm-hmm. choose mm-hmm. Um, to mm-hmm. just not say anything when things happen to us. And I think that that is something culturally we have done forever. Mm-hmm. So yes, domestic violence, sexual violence is a part of a lot of our cultures and it's something that we've seen our moms and grandmoms mm-hmm. and everybody else deal with and kind of swallow and push down. Mm-hmm. And so we need to actually learn how to speak up more and take up a little bit more space. Mm-hmm. Jamila, do you have anything to add? I'll just uh, briefly add, and that's such an important point to consider, and I think that people of color in general, black people obviously don't have a problem taking up space, um, (laughs) more often than not, I'd say, or or in many situations, advocating for ourselves, but when it comes to the person that has harmed you looking like you, Mm -hmm. you know, and that cultural loyalty that people of color have, because we know what we're up against in the world at large, Mm -hmm. is particularly damaging in that, you know, as um, the ladies were saying, is so much of what the original Me Too was about. It was we too are victims of sexual violence, not I am also one of the many women of all creeds and colors. It was like, don't forget us when you're talking about this Mm -hmm. issue. Um, But unfortunately, I'd argue the only form of sexual violence that this country has really felt comfortable acknowledging and attacking is black men or men of color attacking white women. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us are left bare. Mm -hmm. So white men can be violent toward women of color. Mm -hmm. Men of color can be violent to women of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And underprivileged white women can be victimized by white Mm men. But... And, and, white, and privileged white women can be victimized by white men, mm-hmm. you know? But if 
there's a structure that's designed to protect, so much of our policing is designed around protecting white women from black men. Yeah. And it's ineffective. It criminalizes very often, more often than not, the wrong men. Um, and it leaves us all vulnerable. And so I'd say with all of the, you know, the push that some of us are making to ensure that women of color, particularly black women, are not left out of Me Too, it's not going to take anything away from white women victims. It's certainly not going to take anything away from privileged ones. Mm -hmm. um, and when we are safe, you're all safer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. Um, I think one of the biggest buzzwords thrown around today is this idea of, I'm going to do it, air quotes for our listeners, intersectionality. Um, so what does this mean to each one of you? I had to Google it. <laughs> um, when I did, I lost about two hours because I just started doing a deep dive. Of, I, you know, I, I think I'm old, so I feel like I've, I've been through different... Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I prefer the term uh, grown ass. Okay. Uh, I'm grown ass. All right, this is a grown ass woman house right here. Um, so I feel like I've experienced things that didn't have, before they had a name. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm, I'm realizing, oh yes, this is exactly what I've felt for 20 years. Um, but the idea of you know having multiple issues being, um, you know, forced upon you, or actually, I mean, or even celebrate. I think that, mm. you know, intersectionality can also mean, like, I get to be this double negative and prove my point mm -hmm. and make something out of it, and I feel doubly rewarded, right? Um, or I have double the amount of people that I can relate to and speak to and link arms with. So I think that it's an interesting thing because it's also so fluid on any given day, you may identify more with one part of your identity than another. Um, but I, I'm actually more interested to hear mm -hmm. what people who are, are dealing with intersectionality as a, as a, as a movement mm -hmm. or as a topic have to say, because I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. So I'm, um, I've had the privilege of working with Kimberly Crenshaw Williams uh, on a number of projects and mm -hmm. occasions. And she is the scholar, activist, uh, lawyer, she worked, she was part of Anita Hill's legal team mm -hmm. who came up with the theory or the concept of intersectionality. And she came up with that because she wanted something visual, you know, that people mm -hmm. could imagine. So thinking of an intersection, right? So mm -hmm. I live at the intersection of black and woman. Mm -hmm. So my life's experiences are, you know, good, bad, or otherwise are going to be defined by both of those things together. You know, I don't deal with things that are just touching the black side of me. I don't deal with things that are just touching, you know, the woman's side of me. Mm -hmm. They're always there, right? And then there's a number of other intersections. Um, I personally, I'm a first-generation college graduate, so I'm not mm -hmm. a child of privilege. I have a comfortable enough life. Um, but if you factor in someone being queer mm -hmm. or differently able mm -hmm. um, or a first-generation English speaker, any number of things that would impact their station in society, that's what we think of when we think of those intersections. And so there are people among us that are, like, living at, like, a five-way <laughs> side-side, you know? And so that means that they're dealing with challenges within their own communities and with people who look like them. They're dealing with challenges in the workplace. They're dealing with challenges, you know, if they identify as a woman, sitting in groups of other women. Um, because even though they may have the shared experience of womanhood, their womanhood simply exists differently 
than other women. Um, mm -hmm. It certainly feels like a gift and a curse uh, mm -hmm. at times, uh, but, but more often when we talk about intersectionality, we're talking about the challenges and how that impacts uh, your ability to have a, a good quality of life. Yeah. Audrey. I was gonna say for myself, like this is the first time I've ever had a, a boss like who's our program director, she's a black woman. Mm. I've never worked for a woman before mm. and I've never had a boss that was black before. So it's amazing that like in wow. all my years of doing wow. what I'm doing, this is wow. the first time that this has happened for me. And I didn't think about it until she got hired and people were like, oh my God, do you think you guys will get along? Because I think that's the first thing wow. <laughs> I say, right? Yeah. Is that um, if you're gonna work with another woman, it's gonna be difficult, she's black, is she gonna not like you because of that? But it has been so great for me. Like she's my favorite person that I've ever had the privilege to work with. And I think about when, I worked at Sirius and everybody that ran Sirius was like white men. Mm -hmm. And so even though, and I remember I got to do an exit interview, which was awesome after I quit. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first time doing an exit interview and that's when you get to really like unload. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you're not coming back. <laughs> and I just remember like being there and just like saying everything I wanted to say and like, I hope they hear this. I don't have to be anonymous. And I just remember like when I was leaving, that um, Kanye West and Nicki Minaj had like the number one and number two albums on the charts, right? But I was like, you guys don't spend any money on any of the stuff that's like hip hop, anything that's R&B on any of those stations, but y'all are like doing Swedish rock festivals. And <laughs> I just couldn't understand why it was never important to them, but it's because mm -hmm. their own preference wasn't that. They didn't understand it, they didn't care about it. There were no women that were in any positions of power and you don't realize how much that affects you know, what your day at work is oh, like, or yes. the mm -hmm. things that they're just not aware of because they don't really care about it. Mm -hmm. So I, w I will say, you know, that's something that I've had to deal with up until recently that I never even really thought about until I was like, wow, this is so much better for me now. Yeah. You know, it's, there's something in common with intersectionality, Me Too, mm -hmm. Movement for Black Lives, black women, created the organizing principles. And I feel, and that's not, a mis that's not a mistake. Meaning, when you center black women, and this is, this is, this is me personally, um, <laughs> feel that the more intersections you have, if, if it has not broken you, if, mm -hmm. if you are not in trauma, it makes you so much more aware organically mm -hmm. of other people. Yes. Like, I know black women to bring more people into the room immediately mm -hmm. than any other group of people mm -hmm. that I've had to work with. I mean, and that's just been my experience, that they think about others very quickly. They, they're great organizers, particularly in movements. Mm -hmm. Like, they're amazing movement makers, in, particularly in American history, from civil rights movement to the movement for black lives for the women's march like black women are in there mm -hmm. making things happen because of these this idea of intersectionality right mm -hmm. and it has become a strength but i don't want to glamorize this idea that because black women have done the labor the moral labor of this country in a way that we are tired mm -hmm. 
Y'all, y'all heard that? For for those who are who care, there's a sister in the front row. Just went, shh. That is, that is the collective sigh of our aunties and our grandmother. And we're hopeful that in this moment, that that now that we have ways to communicate, y'all can do some some work. But don't cut us out of the. You know, right. we there's so, there's a blueprint. There's a sister that shared on the tour that she was on a date and. Things were, she was close to being sexually violated. And here's what she had to do in that one moment. She had to negotiate so many things Mm -hmm. because she was poor, because she was black, because she had a brother who um, had formerly been incarcerated. Mm -hmm. In this moment, she had to decide, well, I can't call my brother because Mm -hmm. if if he beats his ass, he Mm -hmm. might go back to jail. Mm -hmm. I can't call the cops because the cops are then going to put this brother in jail. Mm -hmm. I can't protect myself. I can't tell my father because he's going to be like, well, why were you out with that? Mm -hmm. All that. It's not just, you know, I'm going to call the police because some boy... Backpack touched my ass, and I feel like I can call the police because I was sexually violent. This girl is being sexually violated and having mm-hmm. to negotiate for the state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Like she's having to negotiate. Do I call the police? The can moment. I call my father yeah. in that moment? Yeah. While the violence is happening, and that's one girl story. Yeah. And so when you think about the negotiations that you have to do when you have all this intersection. She's queer, so there's that part too. So mm-hmm. she's having to shape shift and negotiate and can't protect herself mm-hmm. and doesn't know how to, what to do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so that, that complication has made her an amazing organizer, mm-hmm. but at what cost, right? And so at a certain point, we have to, sh- and when folk, particularly you know, goodwill liberal white folks asking, what can you do? Share your privilege mm-hmm. is what you can do. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of ways. To do, we can talk about it later. Like, what does that look like? Um, but, you know, she didn't have two doors. She didn't have two attorneys. She didn't have two, you know, uh, degrees. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what we we've had so much sympathy. But I just kept thinking about this woman had two doors. She had an architect and a therapist and a husband that worked through her trauma enough to, to give her two doors to walk out of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this movement was created with women who had no choices, let alone two doors and an architect and two lawyers. Yeah. Right? And so when we think about these movements, the encouragement is to think about those women mm-hmm. who have no doors, right, and are still getting it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's all. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say, in terms of uh, piggybacking on that, in terms of intersectionality amongst all women of color, do you feel that there is a division in this industry among us? Um, and do we fall under the same umbrella, or have our struggles been different, and how? We talking about media? Just, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and like, the entertainment industry and, and media, journalism. At large. Yeah, at yeah. large. Like, do you feel like it's been, like... Solidarity. Women, yeah, like, is it all women of color coming men. together? Is it black women? Is it Latinas? Is it Asian women? Is it, you know... I think it's interesting that Angela was <laughs> yeah. talking about how your, her, you know, the instant reaction was, like, are you going to get along with your boss? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that speaks to the way that the industry has definitely... Pit 
women of color against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I So when I started as an intern at The Source magazine, um, I got an internship because I just kept writing letters like every day and just being really annoying, and I was willing to work for free, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, you know, ditched class to go. But, um, you know, and despite the fact that all I wanted to do is anything you asked me to, mm-hmm. um, I think that from what I understand, there was a lot of resistance. Like, why is this Chinese girl, I'm Korean actually, but why is this Chinese girl? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, that's how they do. I mean, I've been Many people's eyes. how they do, yeah. So why is this Chinese girl getting this opportunity to work for free and get us coffee? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and that was coming from other women of color mm-hmm. who had so few opportunities yeah. to speak on this very male-dominated music culture mm-hmm. um, and were probably getting assigned things that were assumed to be their area of expertise right. forever. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it turned out that a lot of my allies ended up being men yeah. who would give me a shot because I wasn't a threat to them mm-hmm. and well, can, they just needed the busy work. Yeah. Can mm-hmm. I ask you a question to kind of like about that? Um, do you feel like it's because we feel like we have to fight for our roles? In these, in, in the jobs that we do get, that it's like we have, we almost feel like there's a, a an insecurity and a need to kind of like yeah. go well, head to head or absolutely. I mean, I think also this is in the '90s. There was absolutely mm. no division and inclusion representatives anywhere. Yeah, right. There was very little Not human resources in in general. Yeah. There was no one that you could. No one who was actively saying, well, for the health of our company and our public face, right. we need to make right. sure that we have a couple brown, yellow black yeah. faces yeah. in our staff picture, right. on our masthead. And right. so... Um, and hip-hop was the wild, I mean, wild, wild, wild west. So, for example, I, I wrote under a pen name mm-hmm. that was gender ambiguous mm-hmm. because I didn't want ev- the reader to be reading this and saying like well I don't need to listen to what she's saying because right. she's a she mm-hmm. and her name yes. looks funny mm-hmm. yeah. um, so I wrote under shorty and um, even when I went on radio I also had an ambiguous mm-hmm. um, name and so I think yeah I, I'm, ha- I'm so happy that now there are movements um, and people who have to be in every corporation and every company to make sure that more chances are available. Mm-hmm. I have to say, too, first of all, to this day, people still call me Miss Info sometimes. Angela Yee all day. I'm proud of that, though. <laughs> when I, yes, when I first started, my name is Angela Yee, right? Mm-hmm. So people didn't know what I looked like. There was no social media or anything. And so they heard Angela Yee, and I remember there was like a message board and they were like, how dare they let this Asian woman come into this space? Because they didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, I'm Chinese and black. Mm-hmm. So they were just assuming this is an Asian girl that is working in this hip-hop business. And she has some nerve, you know, being yeah. here. And I remember being like, damn, they don't even know. And I read the message board and then somebody's like, oh, you know, she's really black. Like somebody said it in there. But I was like, damn. So if I wasn't black, yeah. that would be an issue yeah. for me to be yeah. in this mm-hmm. space. And I just remember, and even like now looking at things like the movie Crazy Rich Asians is out, mm-hmm. and that's the first time they've had like a major, you know, release mm-hmm. in theaters since Joy Luck Club with a, right. uh, you know, Asian yeah. cast. And we don't see that much representation. Mm-hmm. And even just, you know, so I will say like just to piggyback off of what you said, it was 
when people didn't know, unless you met me in person, people really did have an issue thinking that there was like some Chinese girl that was working in hip hop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll admit, um, when I first started seeing your byline, you know, and there's a the slight age dip. We won't call it, you know, the young couch, but there's a slight. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, you're almost the same age. You're the odd one out. It's like, no, no, no. I'm like, it's a slight age difference. But I remember I had that thought, you know, uh -huh. and I was in high school. And, and so, and you must have been in your early 20s. So, I mean, but it, I remember thinking like, oh. And it wasn't that I felt that uh, Asian folks didn't deserve any space in hip hop. Obviously, they've uh, embraced it and contributed in so many ways, you know, since we were quite early on. But I thought of, you know, hurt people hurt people, mm -hmm. right? And also just knowing how hostile that space had been to black women, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that men of color have made space for other women of color or white women that they would not make for women that look like them. Mm -hmm. And so I had that wince. And then I was like, okay, she's good at what she does. Okay, she knows her. Okay, she's good. It's fine. I like her, you know. But that's, I think that's but, the challenge. So in any place that you are where, you know, in the harsh reality of it, you are taking someone else's spot. So what are you going to mm -hmm. do to deserve it? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that um, that applies to men and women, mm -hmm. people of color and people not of color. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, you know, if you um, get an opportunity, whatever it is, if you don't work, and, you know, there's always this pressure. You have, we have to be twice as good. And, mm -hmm. But you know what? You want to be twice as good anyways. Right. Yeah. Um, it shouldn't be a requirement for you to even get an interview or whatever the case may be. But, yeah, once you're in there, hell yeah, you want to be better than everybody else. You know, I think there's, there's, there's a, a criminal lack of history mm -hmm. in American history and the context in which particularly black cultural spaces like hip-hop... Mm -hmm. Because of our history, we're entering it with a, a totally different experience. We made this music to survive, right. right? And this culture to survive, and the oppression, and the racism, and the, you know, why, why hip-hop exists, why jazz existed, why soul, R&B, cornrows, all this. There's, because there's so little understanding of the American experience, and particularly with the, the black and white experiment is very particular, even though they, we have a lot of intersections with, with, and it's so interesting that we keep saying women of color. Mm -hmm. It's people of whiteness are the smaller group. Like, why do we think that? Like, I had a friend that he used to call people of whiteness. He's a poet. And it made so much sense. Look at the map of the world. Yeah. Like, yeah. We, we still have to group ourselves right. together yeah. because whiteness is, is how we compare and organize everything yeah. as it compares to whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of working in cultural in black cultural spaces is not having to do that not having to center whiteness not having to compare experiences beauty aesthetics any aesthetic mm -hmm. as whiteness as the org as the standard or the organizing principle or what is american and what is human yeah. is connected to whiteness so part of what you are experiencing jamila and and we all have is this ancestral reaction to what we've had to live and, and how hard some of us 
work to build this thing, this culture that was shaking and changing the world. We built it with nothing and nobody and against Mm -hmm. pressure. So when we finally get something that's making money, that's making some freedoms for a few people, it does hurt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, but as I feel women can talk about it in a more humane way like we can actually talk about yes it hurts I worked so hard to get here and look like you slipped in do you know what I mean and that's that's just real and it's real because of our history and the fact that you that you know so many people can get into a room and know nothing about being black and American you can get to the White House and not know who the fuck Frederick Douglass is. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so <laughs> that's insane to me. No, it is, but but we see that in 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 smaller ways in our communities. You don't yeah. have to know anything about us yeah. and and reach the pinnacle of success. Mm-hmm. And then we make something out of nothing, and you can come in and get it. That hurts. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's not real and that we don't have to deal with it, but the hurt, if we're not able to say, this hurts, this pisses me off, you can't touch my hair, like you can't touch my hair, yeah. that, <laughs> some things I gotta say, um, <laughs> it's because of the American history and the fact that you don't know it and I have to know everything about you mm-hmm. just to get a job at Publix. Mm-hmm. I have to go, you know what I mean? And so you can come in and, and um, define my culture yeah. without knowing, you know, what it feels like to sit in a beauty salon. Like you get to define my culture. Yeah. And that's what the, that's where the pain comes from <clears throat> when we go like, no, you can't have an Afro, yeah. you know? It's yeah. because you don't. That's not an Afro. <laughs> like, that is the, <laughs> yeah. And if you knew the cultural context <laughs> and the history and what we are seeing, live, what we're living right now, it wouldn't hurt us. And that's yeah. the difference. When people, it's just a hairstyle. No, it's not. Yeah. Our girls are still getting sent home from school mm-hmm. because of braids. Our, you know, so... So that's, I think that's really the big mm-hmm. issue for me is that this lack of understanding of what black Americans have gone through and then immigrants and then, you know, yeah, yeah. that's where the pain comes in when you just feel like, yeah. And immigrants have to, like, so immigrants, especially second generation or one and a half generation, they have to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to do the work of understanding um, the context of whatever. So if, if, I come in and I'm a child of immigrants and I ha- am entering this very binary existence in mm-hmm. America. I, mm-hmm. It is either black or white. And despite the, mm-hmm. the minority that is people of whiteness, it still is black or white. So yeah. as an immigrant, you are like, well, what do I identify as? Nothing right. represents me. So right. where am I going to go? Well, actually... Music of the voiceless, music of anger, protests, um, music of lack of privilege, culture of lack of privilege, um, inner city upbringings, and whatever that is, a lot of immigrant children identify with that more than the thing that we're supposed to aspire to. The reason why a lot of our parents even mm-hmm. come here is so that we will assimilate and aspire to the the whiteness culture right and so if you don't if you are choosing or you have decided oh well this actually speaks to me Mm -hmm. for me it was all about reading on 
you know, re- extensively studying, understanding yep. every aspect of hip hop culture and all of its origins, jazz, blues. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm from Chicago, so mm-hmm. blues, mm-hmm. house music, that's what I was raised on. That was like the food, yeah. the nourishment. So <clears throat> I think if I didn't have that, then yeah, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have been able to be good at my job. I wouldn't have had the dedication. It wouldn't have meant as much to me mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I don't know, I would have just been there to redefine it. And yeah. all immigrants are taught to, to not like black Americans. Yeah. Even yeah. if you're an immigrant from Nigeria. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, they're, mm-hmm. you're sure. on the boat. They're told like these, are, they're lazy, they're violent. Mm-hmm. So you come here, all re- black immigrants are taught to think down mm-hmm. on black yeah. Americans. Yeah. Except for our culture, right. like you love our music, but you hate us. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so when we get together, because yeah. we often always do, particularly in those spaces, yeah. Yeah. then it's like, yo, <laughs> like right. so that advancing what happens when we get. But there's a lot of undoing around black pathology, black American pathology mm-hmm. that people almost get with their passport. Like yeah. they're t- and then they go to school and don't learn anything about us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it compounds the pathology mm-hmm. of lazy, violent, and, and you have no idea what we've done right. or what has happened to us. Mm-hmm. And so part of, you know, part of the, the healing is sharing our experience and, and the, the culture and the music is such a good on-ramp yeah. to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a Time's Up panel uh, like a couple of months back when we yeah. launched mm-hmm. Times of Advertiser. Rebecca was on it. She was amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a young woman that stood up. She works at an agency. And she was saying uh, she was, is from Singapore. And she had like recently came to America. And she, she had been working in advertising in Singapore for a long time. And she was very like, she, she stood up and was like, you know, I had to like, go to the library and get some books and start like actually learning about the history of American racism and culture and and the relationship between like black people from the black from the African diaspora and like white people like you know Anglo like just everything she's like and because I had no idea what was going on she's like I would hear conversations and hear things and I'd be like what what are they talking you know what I mean and she's like I had to like find out she's like and it's fucked up, like, you know? Like, she was, like, kind of, like, she had, like, a moment. But this kind of, so we're inside of an advertising agency, obviously. We all work at ad, in that agency here. Um, culture vultures. This is something that's been going on for a really long time, you know? Like, people have been, like, co-opting the cultures of black people, specifically uh, a lot of people of color, Latin, Latin people, ever, like most people, for a very long time to market towards those audiences. Mm-hmm. But the problem happens a lot of times when there's no representation in the room. Um, as we saw with like H&M, for example. And you know, it's like nobody, that didn't go by anybody's, right. no one saw it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, we know that agencies and brands that not only need to hire more people of color um, and let their voices be heard, but like, what can we do as an audience and as consumers to make sure we're not just like falling for the okie doke or like, you know, like how can we be responsible and hold ourselves accountable in that way? I think media literacy mm-hmm. is uh, sorely, obviously, it's uh, sorely needed in this country, or else we wouldn't have an actual fake news problem. Not <laughs> the president yeah. calls fake news, right? Uh, and with that, and as somebody who worked uh, for a magazine for years and in media, 
and I'd see how consumers would react to either things that were written or published by us or other publications or outlets or just advertisements, right? And so, like, mm -hmm. the assumption of the layperson who doesn't work in this world is that that H&M ad went all the way up the corporate ladder and everybody saw it and said, the little black boy and the monkey is a great idea. Yeah. And it's like, no, <laughs> you didn't have a structure in place to ensure that somebody clueless put a little black boy in a monkey sweatshirt right. and then allowed that to be used on their website. I actually saw that that sword shirt in the store before the, um, oh, the controversy yeah. and I was shopping for my four-year-old nephew and I was you know I was like oh no <laughs> <laughs> you know and that was just seeing a sword shirt with a monkey on it you yeah. know like I remember my daughter was an infant one of my friends saying I can't believe people buy their kids uh, stuff with monkeys on it I was yeah. like yeah I wouldn't buy anything for my baby with a monkey on so I just went past it mm -hmm. you know like that's not to say you can't have monkey things but like that visual was inappropriate. And if you have mm -hmm. a sweatshirt that a lot of kids can't wear, then maybe you don't need it to be a sweatshirt. Maybe it can be a stuffed animal or a book. But, like, most people don't know the process of getting something like that on the website because it wasn't yes. in an ad. Yes. Yeah. The right. boy was on the site. So yeah. people thought that this was in a magazine or a catalog or, mm -hmm. you know, in the windows of the store, which maybe it was, but I didn't see that anywhere. I, I just know. saw the screenshot from the website. Um, we have a way to react to advertisers uh, and brands that we did not have 20 That's years right. ago yeah. immediately. Mm -hmm. You know, so like mm -hmm. if that Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial yeah. Yeah. had yeah. aired after Love and Hip Hop or The Bachelor, <laughs> you know, it would have been a few days before it made the news because you would have had to wait for some letters and some phone calls and mm -hmm. talk radio shows to take right. it on. Right. The moment it dropped, the internet exploded because it was that awful. Um, so I, <laughs> you know, I would just say, and it's hard. You know, I think that it's, it's really hard to make consumers responsible for this. I'd say that people that work in advertising and in media have to think about these people are not showing, you know, if a story runs on L.com, not singling <coughs> L out, there's not anything, oh, the Kim and Kanye thing. That was, you know, it didn't bother me the way it did other people, but I get it. Say, say Vogue runs a story and people find it offensive. They're going to assume on Vogue.com, not in the print magazine, mm -hmm. people will assume that Anna Wintour read that story. Yeah. Now, we know that doesn't make any sense, that Anna Wintour is reading the 300-word hot take on Kylie Jenner's, <laughs> like, you know, lip fillers or, or any number of things. Mm -hmm. But that is what the typical consumer might assume. Mm -hmm. So when you are trying to communicate to people, you have to realize they don't know anything about our business. We have to know about their business. We have to know about their perspective. We have to know about their sensitivities and, and what's rubbing them raw. So maybe the monkey sweatshirt is not as traumatic to people 10 years before Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Black Lives Matter, right? right? The, that particular sensitivity doesn't mean that we're overreacting. It means that we're traumatized and we're hurt and we're dealing mm -hmm. with a lot of stuff. So the last thing I need is this little casual racism because I've got <laughs> big exclamation <laughs> point racism to challenge. Right. Um, so, yeah. And just, you know, try your best if you're, if you're a consumer and something has bothered you to figure out where did it come from, who's responsible, did Pepsi use an in-house uh, department to produce that uh, commercial, mm -hmm. or did they go outside of the company? And if you can form an informed critique, that's, you know, the most effective way to go. But again, we can't put that onus on their shoulders. We just have to get it right. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I um, Two things. When we launched Vibe, I was one of the founding editors of Vibe magazine, mm -hmm. and I remember having to work with advertisers to explain to them 
It was actually a good um, example of how to work collaboratively. A couple of advertisers had the courage to say, we have no idea mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how to market to an audience that you say is wearing Tim's and buying you know, luxury cars and wearing Dolce Gabbana and also FUBU. Like, because there was luxury brands and then there was sportswear and that was it. Hip hop was the intersection of those things, right? Mm -hmm. It was the first time that people were wearing like jeans and diamonds and furs <laughs> and sneakers. Yeah. And, and now it seems very casual and re you know, regular. Yeah. But <clears throat> in 1992, that was revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And we worked um, and, and very particularly with um, Banana Republic, problematic name, but anyway, <laughs> Banana Republic mm -hmm. had a, an ad campaign called American Beauty. Mm -hmm. And they, want, they knew that Vibe was hot. They wanted to be in this match. They were like, we don't know how to say this inside of a, a hip hop aesthetic. It ended up being, it's like kind of cast a black person. Yeah. That was basically what, and it ended up being, um, oh, wait a minute, I'll remember his name. Anyway, a big superstar. But <laughs> Tyson. Tyson. Oh. Tyson Beckford. <clears throat> so we did that with several brands, but it was actually the first time I went to um, Nike, White and mm -hmm. Kennedy. They, they, they wanted to work with the editors and the people that were in the culture to create authentic advertising. And so it was the first time I'd really seen someone say, we don't know. And part of what I'm experiencing what I've experienced since then, particularly in a room with like woke bros, because there's a lot of woke bros in advertising. <laughs> they, y'all know they are. They're so cool. Um, they have a really hard time saying, I don't know. Mm -hmm. yeah. they, they, they will be like, yeah, that's cool. Like, it, so there's a part of this, again, it's about organizing around whiteness and maleness. And so if you've had a, comp a whole culture where white, heterosexual, Christian, male dumb is the, is, the, is the organizing principle, the further you get away from that, the more confusing it gets for yeah. certain folks. And so part of even those cool, woke bros have a really hard time going, um, what do you think? Yeah or actually knowing they don't know if that Afro puff is whack. <laughs> they don't know it's crooked or they don't know, but they won't say that they don't know because yeah. they've been so used to being the, the best, the answer, the, and now because of the cultural explosion, like there's people and things that are so exciting and generally, and this might, this is, you know, I'm, I'm an auntie, so I can say whatever the fuck I want. But, but there's, it's often a very bland lens. Basically, like, minimalism, a bland kind of blend. But when you're talking to people of color and blackness and culture, it's not so bland, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're used to, you know, green bean casserole, and we're like, this is mac and cheese, and you don't know how to... You don't know how to ask. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm finding a lot of particularly white men and cool ones, 
Yeah. And it's, sometimes it's harder when they're cool because they're so invested in being cool that they can't say, we don't know what this is. Sometimes yeah. the, you know, the not cool guys are like, I'm not cool. You tell me. But the, yeah. Right? You know the, those yeah. good guys that you're like, But the cool bros are the hardest yeah. in terms of aesthetic and, and because they're just so invested in like, you know, I got the great got kicks, you know? Yeah. And even right. in hip hop, you remember all those like, cool like white dudes with the hoodies and they were down and they're like oh lord so, <laughs> so they're all like super rich now too so, <laughs> so that hip hop thing was fun for them it worked out really good and I think if you want our dollars you have to hire us to be in those rooms that's so, that period. part like, mm-hmm. everybody knows how important <laughs> and how much money we spend and how we drive the economy so we should be in those rooms making those decisions not just come to us and ask us questions and yeah. do a focus group yeah. But <laughs> we should be in the room getting a nice salary yep. to do Pay the work us. also. Yeah. And no more picking our brains. That part. Like, yeah. the number yeah. of times, and it hasn't just been white men, but I'll say they've been particularly, men in general, but white men have been particularly egregious about, let me pick your brain, or, you know, we've right. done this thing, and it was mm-hmm. offensive, and how do we fix it? And there's times where it's like, okay, if me have, you know, making space for this conversation, right. you know, just giving him some hours out of my day or an hour out of mm-hmm. my day, is going to help another person of color or, you know, protect people mm-hmm. from being offended, then maybe it's worth it. Then it's like, no, I, I can't do that for free anymore. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, I, I'm a consultant, so you can yeah. contract yeah. me. That's right. <laughs> or, you know, or I can refer you to someone else um, or you can hire someone full time. But like the idea or if it's someone within your company, you know, that's mm-hmm. something that happens a lot, too. I'm sure some of you all have experienced it. Certainly not here. But <laughs> You know, um, women of all races where a man in your company or in your field has wanted to pick your brain about something specific mm-hmm. to women or a person of color. Mm-hmm. You know, have, you've had a white person say, I want to talk to you about this. I want to yeah. better understand this. It's like, what are you offering them for this expertise? Because you still have the Internet and the library and all these channels mm-hmm. that you can take. And maybe it's not a safe road. Maybe you'll go down, you know, maybe mm-hmm. you'll go do that by yourself and come back completely wrong. Like, oh, my God, this Jason Wicklock guy was talking about black culture. <laughs> like, you might pick the wrong person. But if you're finding somebody in your space that you trust enough to ask that, can you offer them mentorship? Yeah. You know, can you just straight up say, what do you need? How can I support you here? Or is mm-hmm. there someone that, you know, you need me to introduce you to? Is there a room? You know, or if, even if you're not offering it in the moment, think about walking them into a room that they could not get in on their own. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's real tough. I think day rates and billable hours is very, very key. Yeah. So <laughs> to, you know, reiterate what Jamila's saying. Um, and also I would say, especially since this is an advertising agency, mm-hmm. Don't pigeonhole us into what you think that we will, we can provide and we cannot provide anything else. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, specific to Widen, and I don't know that I would have gotten this opportunity, even though I, it's obvious that it would, be a, um, you know, it would be a good fit, but I wouldn't have gotten the opportunity if I didn't have like some inside connections. But I, I actually consulted on a Sprite campaign here at Widen um, because it was like they wanted to do a build out of a a hip hop sort of uh, experience, mm-hmm. right? So they brought me in and and they were cool bros <laughs> that were okay with saying, we don't know, please give us like some ideas. And I, you know, and, and the opportunity was great because I was able to say like, and this was years ago, mm-hmm. to say, you know, Sprite has the money. What if you guys got Chance the Rapper and mm-hmm. Lin-Manuel 
Miranda to do a musical together or something like that. You yeah. know, so all these big, big ideas that who knows when they, you know, they put it up to, to Sprite. I'm sure they were like, I don't get it or we don't have the money or whatever. But at least that opportunity was, you know, that conversation was had and maybe they were able to go away with a whole bunch of names of different talent. I mean, I was telling them about Buck the Dancer and all mm-hmm. these different people that at some point they will revisit and say like, mm. what about that guy? Or what about mm-hmm. this woman? Um, so I hope that happens. But then in a different situation, I, I, I was consulting for Apple. And again, they thought that they were just going to get a bunch of hip hop ideas. At the end of it all, I told them they were doing something that was tennis related. I mean, um, I'm sorry, golf related. And mm-hmm. along with a lot of other celebrities that I was suggesting, I said, you know, Alice Cooper is a pro-level golfer. Mm-hmm. He actually, oh. Alice Cooper, the old, you know, heavy yeah. metal head, is an incredible golfer. You should really get him because he's legit and he has credibility with mm-hmm. the golf, um, you know, uh, fans. And they did that. And they didn't want that from me. Mm-hmm. But I gave mm-hmm. that to them. So I would say that for all of you guys who are able to participate in advertising campaigns um, or as consumers, like, don't just be whatever the brand wants you to be. Mm-hmm. Shop what feels good to you, mm-hmm. not just what's marketed towards you. Yeah. And speak up um, if something doesn't feel right, even if you are you know, <coughs> a studio assistant. You don't know. That... that Later on, they might remember, yes, that one assistant did say that this was going to be a problem before we spent $3 million on our Pepsi ad. That part. Who was that person again? Let's find her. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like when you're sitting trying to mind your business and you hear hear something going on and you're like, oh, no. Right. No, don't do that. I can relate to that. I can and be like, Yeah. Like, hey, I just want to shoot you a quick note. It's 2018, and it seems that now more than ever is the time to stand up and speak out, to live and walk in your complete and honest truth, no more code switching, no more phone voice. Um, We're going all in, (laughs) culture and all. And do you think that this has been um, possible and actually true for us as women of color to be able to stand in our complete truth? I kind of want to like add something to that too. Like we were having a discussion amongst ourselves. Um, we have this discussion a lot on the podcast where we yeah. talk about how we were raised and like growing up. My mother and and not to put her out there, she's great. Uh, would always say to me like, if I'm if I leave work at four because I don't have anything else left to do, I don't have any meetings. I can leave work and I come home. She's like. You gonna get fired? Like you know, like you, you know, she can't believe it. You know, if I'm like, I'm sick, I don't feel well, I'm not going. Mm-hmm. Somebody's gonna take your job. You know what I mean? Like, there's mm-hmm. that fear of like not like being thankful for the position that I have. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for where I am, which I am grateful for where I am. But I'm also like, if I'm sick, I'm sick. You know what I mean? Like, I'm gonna take my vacation days if I have them. I'm not gonna not take them. And I think a lot of times for people of color specifically, we have, and, and I know that like we were talking about the immigrant story as well. For mm-hmm. Farron, has a little bit of a different <clears throat> perspective on this. But for me, I always felt like I had to like basically go into work, keep my head down, do my work, do it the best I possibly can, better than anybody, and then also like don't take any days off. Mm-hmm. Don't take like whatever privileges are being offered to me as an employee because that means that I'm going to be looked at as somebody who doesn't work hard or I'm going to lose my job or something like that. So that's kind of like one of the things. Yeah. And the way in which I was raised, I'm a first generation um, Iranian 
and my parents both came over at 15, 16 during the revolution to give their family a, a better life. So from the very beginning, they were like, to me and my sister, you are going to raise your hand, you're going to jump into that room, you're going to make your voice known, because that's what we worked hard to get you to do. So it was yeah. just a good conversation between us. Yeah. So like, what do you guys think about that? Do you guys feel like there's now is like, everybody's like, okay, I'm done with like code switching. I'm not going to, hello, this is Sarita Wesley from Lincoln. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm not doing that. <laughs> Hi, this is Sarita. You know, it's just things like that. What do you guys think about that? I'll, I'll say throughout my career, I've lived somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Like there are, there have always been things about me that were unapologetic. Um, and I know we overuse that word now. I feel like we kind of run into the ground uh, at times. But it's an important word, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I've had, I've, I, you know, I, Michaela is a mentor of mine and, and also somebody who I followed long before we met. And so she always had her big afro and her nose ring, you know. Mm-hmm. And I love that about her and that even in black media spaces, you didn't always see women who looked like that. Right. You know, yeah. um, and so that meant a lot to me. So I've had my nose ring since I was, you know, on my 18th birthday, I went out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the only job I ever took it out for was Starbucks, you know. <laughs> um, and, and I've got purple hair. It's not gray. A little girl at my daughter's school said to me the other day, she grabbed my hand and said, why are you getting old so fast? <laughs> and it took, I was like, more? More? Talking that, I was like, okay, I need some fillers, you know. And I was like... And then I was like, oh, my hair, it's not gray, it's purple. But I've had (laughs) purple hair and blue hair and, you know, everything except for, like, green and yellow and have shown up in rooms and on panels at very fancy schools that I, you know, did not attend and and (laughs) had that same look sometimes with the kid in my hand because I thought I'd bring the baby with me because I wanted to save the day that she's with her dad for me to go on a date or something, you know, and told that story. Like, here's why the kid is here. No, she has a dad. I just figured I'd bring her with me so I could kick it on the three days that he has. Um, So I've been able to be myself and be myself professionally uh, or in professional spaces and still showed up and delivered great quality work and with that I understand that that creates a ceiling of sorts you Mm -hmm. know and I can't always see it I can't always experience it um, you know directly but I know that there are people that would be more comfortable Mm -hmm. you know like okay we're doing this panel we're looking for our keynote for our MLK because it's about to be that season Michaela (laughs) 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 and women's history month we stay booked and busy and people do not call us (laughs) the rest of the year um but um but but that some folks may say, okay, we'd rather have somebody a little bit more brand safe or a little bit. I'm like, okay, you know, you called the brand safe girl and that campaign fell apart. So maybe you should have called the girl with the crazy hair and the nose ring. <laughs> um, but with that, there are negotiations. There are times that I've shrunk and I shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. There have been times that I've put on that voice and maybe I didn't have to. And there are still times where I have to do that to survive. Yeah. You know, um, but in, in terms of working a job or you know, whether it's with a client or if I were going into something full time, I've never been in a space where I had to shrink or mm-hmm. code switch every day. Mm-hmm. I've rejected that. And that certainly has cost me a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked for seven years, uh, almost eight years in black media spaces. Uh, my last role was a VP title that was very cute. Um, and <laughs> I enjoyed it to a certain extent. Then I realized that that wasn't for me and I needed a lot more freedom and to take mm-hmm. on projects and different mm-hmm. things. But I had a black female boss who loved me mm-hmm. for seven years, yeah. who was a mother. 
Mm -hmm. So she was able to understand when my kid was sick, mm -hmm. you know, or when I wasn't feeling well, or when I was tired. So I didn't have to apologize for taking a day off. And I worked hard. I took the shortest maternity leave in history. Like, I gave my all, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's one thing in terms of this whole, okay, we don't have to code switching where we can be ourselves. I think that women in particular are still struggling with the ideas that we have been trained to show up in workplaces like men. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm not saying that to assign some sort of binary idea of gender, mm -hmm. but that, you know, if you have a baby, come right back. Don't look like you've had a baby. Try not to talk about it, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, because mm -hmm. you don't want to remind people that, you know, the kid is so, oh, here we go. You know, this yeah. is what happens when mm -hmm. they have kids. And, you know, we could have got the guy, but no, it's hire the girl. And it's just, <laughs> you know, um, or, or just to, I mean, having menstrual, I mean, you don't need to announce that you're having cramps, but there are things that we deal with physically, <laughs> yeah. emotionally, spiritually, professionally, that most cisgender heterosexual men are not going to, or cisgender men, period, not going to deal with that we're still trained to hide and shrink and, mm -hmm. and put aside so that we can be professional so right. I guess that's the next door to really open is how do we get to be women all day long mm -hmm. I think for myself you know we do the morning show and I have my podcast lip service and it's mm -hmm. very different right there's a lot of things I say mm -hmm. on my podcast mm -hmm. that I would never say on my morning show mm -hmm. but part of that is being cognizant of who's listening like there's right. kids in the car sometimes. So certain things you don't want to say because you're like, well, I don't want to say this and talk about... <laughs> say it, girl. <laughs> <laughs> my, lip my podcast is Lip Service, and we talk about sex a lot. And we talk about <laughs> different things, like we might have a dominatrix come on the show and, mm -hmm. you know, flog somebody that that's done. <laughs> but I wouldn't do that on my morning show. So I do yeah. think that... I am aware of like the space that I'm in when I'm there, but I do remember when I first started, I came from satellite radio where it was uncensored, mm -hmm. and they were really nervous to hire me because they were like, is she gonna be able to handle this because I was so raw, mm -hmm. you know, when I was on the radio and you can't really do that. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of like part of the job description is that you do have to tone it down to a certain degree, but then I also feel like if I was a man, there's certain things I could get away with saying that right. I can't get away with saying as a woman like if I say something and one of my male co-workers says the same exact thing people might attack me for it and have an issue with it but and I've witnessed this so many times but if they say it everybody's like in uh, agreement mm -hmm. so I think that happens a lot I think at times we have guests on the show and afterward I'm like oh man I would really like to follow up with that person and get their mm -hmm. information mm -hmm. but because I'm a woman like I've walked out of the room and walked back in and like oh yeah look at her out there you know he about to fuck and I'm like yeah. I'm doing the same thing y'all do which is yes. getting somebody's information because mm -hmm. that's somebody that I feel like I could work with in the future mm -hmm. why does it have to be like that right. or if I take a picture with somebody they're like oh yeah you know he hit that like and I guarantee you it happens every single day, all the yeah. time. And the guys will never understand what that's like. And they can make little jokes and it's just different like for them to understand the space that I'm in and the criticism that I get that they don't get, right. you know? And it happens all the time. But my podcast, the reason I even started Lip Service was because I wanted women to feel like we could talk about sex mm -hmm. and talk about those things. And it doesn't mean that, you know, that's something that, like, we all are, well, I don't know we all are, but uh, most people at a certain age are having sex, 
And we should be able to discuss those things and not feel like it's something, you know, disgusting or something mm -hmm. that's not ladylike to talk about. It's so informational. And so many people will hit me up and be like, I'm so glad you had a discussion. I learned a lot. I feel like I can't talk to my friends or have these discussions in those spaces. And I think it's a shame that we still feel like that. Yeah. I want to follow up on something with, that Jamila said, and I just... I'm very cognizant of the fact that my proximity to whiteness made it possible for me to have an afro and a nose ring and be on CNN. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't want at any point to not be clear that if there was another woman who was darker than I was that had different features than I did, could do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that my proximity to whiteness also protected me in a certain way. It let me get in the room, it let, you know, it was part of, it was a strategy that I can come in and I can talk about black stuff, but I don't scare you. I'm not that black girl, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. that angry black girl. Mm -hmm. And so part of, it's not, at this point in my life, it's not really about code switching or shape shifting. It's about being honest and having a strategy in, because I I didn't choose the color of my hair, the color of my eyes, or the color of my skin, or who my ancestors were. But how do I, I use this to then smuggle in every black girl I know, <laughs> right? And part of, part of doing that is, you know, why, why go to Georgia? Why go to Tallahassee? To be on the ground with real women and women of color that are going through real stuff. Right. Because, and I'm, and I'm glad that my hair and my nose ring inspired you, but... And, and that was intentional mm -hmm. because I could come in and, prof and have a black aesthetic, but because I'm this light mm -hmm. and my hair is blonde, these are things that you under, these are organizing principles. You understand yeah. blondness. Mm -hmm. You understand whiteness, even though I'm more yellow under here than pink. <laughs> the white girl foundation does not work for me. But, but, but I'm saying this to say, like, I understand that. Mm -hmm. And not only did I understand it, then I used it, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I know, and to your point, if I didn't take that job in the, you know, Anderson Cooper unit, they weren't gonna hire another black girl. Mm -hmm. I know that. I'm not taking some darker girl space. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna go for you. Yeah. And that I hate. That's just the truth. So if they're gonna let me in the door, I'm gonna infiltrate. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so that's had to be. It's so it's less code switching, and I'm, I feel like at this point in my career, it's a lot more strategy. Yeah. It's a lot more how to. If I really love. Black women, I do. Like, I love us down. Mm -hmm. If I love us, then all these tools are now a strategy of how to get indoors and how to be in spaces and say things that if I say them, they're received not quite as difficult. Like, if Fannie Lou Hamer said, like, y'all shook. Yeah. So with me, you might get shook later. Yeah. You know? like, oh, she actually said he was a racist. But, um, so it's more strategy now than mm -hmm. this idea of having to code switch or shape shift. And because I look the way that I look, I code switch and shape shift way less mm -hmm. than most other black women. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, the idea that no more, you know, code switching, be your true self, I think is mm -hmm. great if that is really the case, but I mm -hmm. also um, feel like I am part of the 
population that is still struggling with that mm-hmm. even now. Mm-hmm. So if that is the narrative that, you know, if that's real, I, I haven't caught up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, for one thing, I am always a little cautious about telling people that they should be more public or more confrontational or more mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. confessional than you know, then I feel like I have the right to say. So when it comes to Me Too issues, you know, people are always saying, like, why didn't they stand up and say this 20 mm-hmm. years ago? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's many things that I, I have dealt with that I'm not ready to yeah. speak on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of, like, code switching and, and your voice and, and speaking up for yourself, something happened to me right up the block at Hot 97 many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. And I have still to this day not really fully dealt with it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of you guys, you know, if you were on the internet back then, um, <laughs> were hearing about, like, there was, you know, I was part of a, a morning show where the host made a very, very oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. hurtful yeah. song and tried to get mm-hmm. me to sort of play ball with that. Mm-hmm. And it was about, you know, a tsunami, and it was mm-hmm. about a lot, a lot of people of many different colors, mm-hmm. um, dying and suffering. And I just, that was like my one moment of being strong enough to say like, I don't like this and I'm mm-hmm. not down for this and I'm not participating mm-hmm. right. and not necessarily thinking because for everything else, I'm always thinking, well, what is the consequence? How, mm-hmm. Is this okay for me? What will happen? And I didn't. And I just was like, I, I can't do this. That's, it's wrong. Right. And not necessarily just because I'm Asian American, but because it was wrong right. as a human. Right. And, you know, I didn't think about the consequences. I still think now I don't talk about it. And so the, the narrative of that event has been interpreted in many different ways. From Asian Americans, every other day, someone is coming up to me and saying, like, I was in college at the time. It really meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of buoys me forward. It right. carries me mm-hmm. throughout every day. But in general, I haven't owned it. So I can't say oh, we're living our truth. I'm not necessarily living my truth all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. I'm trying in little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's getting easier. I hope it's getting easier for everybody who is younger, right. mm-hmm. um, who is listening to us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Thank you for being honest about that. Yeah. yeah. And that segues into our perfect last question. Mm-hmm. Um, but what piece of advice would you give the next generation of um, women of color leaders, women of color creatives, the people behind us? I would say that you always have to be opening doors for other people when you get into position. And that's what makes people stay successful, right? Is when you get into position, and like Michaela's been saying, this whole, like just helping other people mm-hmm. get in the door because that's going to be your support always. So when it's time for you to move on to something else, you can feel great about having helped someone get into a space. And you never know, they might help you get into a space later on, but authentically wanting to do those things instead of feeling like, well, I'm here, this is all about me, mm-hmm. because it's not all about you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, don't let positions of power or even the absence of power allow you to neglect your needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, are you taking your PTO? Are you yeah. taking advantage of that health insurance? <laughs> are you going to the doctor? Are you seeing a therapist? Are you getting enough rest? Are you, you know, these are not things that I always do, but are you, you know, are you moving your body every day? Are you nurturing your relationships with your loved ones? Um, 
you know, for us, success feels very, like you said, your mom's saying, like, you left yeah. work at four, they're going to give you a job. To, you're going to go back to <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> sitting at your desk drinking your coffee. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, there's this fearfulness. Um, and, and what that fear does to us, it, it doesn't allow it. We don't take care of ourselves. That's yeah. why so many women of color in high-stress positions have heart issues. Um, have cancer that goes undiagnosed because you're also dealing with the medical racism that you face when you do go to the doctor, which is why you have to be particularly proactive about who your doctor is and how often you go and keeping up with the things that they tell you to do. but, but that we stress ourselves out. We're so worried that we're going to lose this little bit of ground that we have mm-hmm. and what that means, not just for us or our families, but for other women, mm-hmm. um, for other people of color. And also that fear, and this came up a few times earlier in the conversation, can prevent us from making space for other people to mm-hmm. come yeah. in. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so there's the person who's like, I don't want her here because she represents maybe me not getting, you know, this next thing I'm mm-hmm. supposed to have, even if she's more junior than me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so opening those doors and, and making care, making, not forgetting or neglecting yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I would say it's a, it's a part of self-care, but being mindful of your diet. And I don't mean mm. your food, but your diet of what yep. goes into your brain. Mm-hmm. And I think that right now, mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about how I grew up pre-internet when if I was in an uncomfortable place, if I was sad, if I was happy, if I was in love, if I hated someone, whatever in between, I ha- was stuck there. I couldn't, I had to either think about it constantly or deal with it or talk to somebody or or observe, but I couldn't just jump into somebody else's life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, if I was sad, I couldn't just be happy because I'm scrolling. Mm-hmm. And I think now a lot about when I am scrolling infinitely, mm-hmm. what, who am I choosing mm-hmm. to feed on? And um, I think that we always opt for our friends and like-minded people and things that, like, make us feel good. Um, or things that make us angry, and so then we're just sort of on this one track. So I think, you know, be aware of, of your <coughs> intake. Um, try to make it diverse so that you know the other side. Mm-hmm. I think that that gives you a lot of balance and, um, and not dwelling on always aspirational things of other people's lives um, and sort of being a little bit more aware of yourself um, and things that are nurturing yourself. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah, I have... I have- I have the next generation. Um, I've given birth to the next generation. I, I have a 27-year-old daughter, and she's dope. <laughs> she is. She actually, she just changed her name from Dope Daughter. She was Dope Daughter on Instagram for a long time. Now, it's something about glitter. I don't know. Glitter. <laughs> she, but my joy is watching how confident she is. Like, she, And she's, she's in the beauty industry. She's an you know, aspiring beauty executive. And she feels like she belongs anywhere, mm-hmm. right? She's not perfect, but she's, she's perfectly her. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is about who she grew up around, being in New York. But it was the first time in my family, line- like there wasn't a broken black girl that had to be put back together. Mm. You know, there's something powerful about when you're broken and rebuilding yourself, what kind of woman you become, no matter what, where you come from, there's something 
powerful about that. Mm -hmm. But there's also something so rewarding. And Jamili, I'm going to mm, get emotional. You're going to see this in your daughter. Oh yeah. Like mm -hmm. when when they're not um they're not broken to mm -hmm. start with, mm -hmm. that then they get to just be. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I would like to say to all the women in the room, particularly, let other young women see who you really are. Mm -hmm. Let them see, my daughter has, a, we have proximity to our children that the previous generation didn't have. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what my mother was oh, yeah. ever doing or eating or going to work with her. I'm like, I wasn't up under her like that. But my daughter has seen me fall and get back up and mm -hmm. fall and get back up and she's seen me get back up more than I have fallen. She has seen me grow mm -hmm. and grow still. And so I feel like we're absorbing photos of snapshots of the best part of people's life. People hiring photographers to take a portrait of themselves with some weird little caption about, you know, radical self-care, you know? <laughs> Avocado toast. Yeah, right, and you don't know, like, what was the journey? How did you get there? And so if we can just give the, the younger women in our lives and it can start now if they're teen, everyone should have some teen girl up under them in this room and let them see how you become who you are. Let them see, not just like bring your daughter to work day, but get a girl, mm -hmm. get one girl in your neighborhood or somewhere and let them see you, take them out for tea, let them mm -hmm. see what the journey is because we, there's a lot of pain in thinking like, why don't my thighs look like that? Why couldn't I yeah. get to the, why doesn't my avocado toast come yeah. out like that? <laughs> you know? All the time. All, all the time, right? Yes. So, I mean, and that, that I think is really how you get to know what your authentic self is, is you live it and you live it out, out loud. Um, but in an intimate way with some other woman, we have to let each other see each other and how we get there. Mm -hmm. And just one last thing I want to say is like for people to collaborate with each other, mm -hmm. open businesses together, even if it's something that's on the side while you're doing what you do. Because a lot of stuff Great that advice. I do now that's outside of radio is things that I've collaborated, like open businesses with other mm -hmm. people. A lot of times we feel like we have an idea, we want to keep it to ourselves, do it ourselves. But it's so much power in being able to say, okay, you bring this to the table, I bring this to the table, let's invest in something and own a business and start something together. And that's really important to make sure that you guys do that work also, like everybody. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Well, thank you guys. Thank you. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Thank you to Fast Company. Um, thank you to Wyden Kennedy, New York. Thank you for Wyden Kennedy in general. Thank you to Rebecca and Farron. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Angela Yee. Thank you, Jamila Lemieux. Thank you, Ms. Info. Thank you, Michaela Angela Davis. Thank you, guys. Every, everyone, thank you. <laughs>